Hello, and welcome to PW's LitCast, a podcast from Publishers Weekly. In each episode, we speak with authors of both fiction and nonfiction titles. I'm Lenny Picker, and today I'm speaking with author Felicity Aston, whose Polar Exposure, an all-women's expedition to the North Pole, is being published by Imagine, the sponsors of today's podcast. Good afternoon, Felicity. Good afternoon. Would you start us off with a brief excerpt from your book, please? Yes. The noise of the departing helicopter subsided and was replaced by the deafening stillness of the frozen Arctic Ocean. The quiet left a ringing in my ears and any sound I made was deadened, as if I was moving around inside a padded room. We'd landed on a wide, flat ice floe and underfoot our boots sank ankle-deep into a layer of fine snow. I stole a glance at the stacks of ice rubble bordering the empty pan that had been our landing pad and at the horizon that lay to our north as I pulled out my handheld positioning system, the unit we used to record our location coordinates. Waiting for the device to orientate itself, I squared up to the horizon, my mind skimming over the terrain ahead and reaching out towards our distant destination. The landscape was intimidating from the ground as it had been from the air. The mini mountain ranges of jumbled ice debris that crowded our northward view radiated serene menace. The chaos was beautiful to look at, but terrifying to contemplate navigating through. I inhaled the sharp cold, choking on every other breath and thumping my chest occasionally as if to dislodge frost from my lungs. The chill began seeping through my layers of clothing and I felt my courage falter a little. Setting out over that ice would be hard work as an individual, let alone with a novice team. Have faith, I told myself firmly. Faith in the team, faith in the training I put them all through, faith in myself to propel us all forward. My responsibility was not just to maintain my own confidence, but to conserve and build theirs too. I turned to look at the group now sprawled across the flow, each having extract her own sledge and skis from the jumble of kit hauled hurriedly out of the helicopter. They were unusually quiet, and I could sense the communal doubt gathering like a thickening mist. These first experiences on the ice would set the pattern for the rest of the expedition, and in many ways our success or failure would be determined right there in those first few hushed moments. Thank you very much, Felicity. Could you tell our audience... What led up to that very, very dramatic moment where you guys are getting off the helicopter and you have those first, as you described it, hushed moments that are going to sort of set the tone for whether the expedition is going to be a success or not? Yes. Well, I mean, lots of people don't appreciate because they have no reason to, that getting to that point where you're actually taking your first steps on the ice you know, that's taken you two years or more to get to that point. For us on that particular expedition, I'd been working on this for nearly four years by that point. So that's a lot of time, energy and sacrifice that you've made over that period of time to to have that experience. So as well as anxiety and fear and all the things that you might expect, there's a huge amount of anticipation as well. You know, there's a lot of pressure that you put on yourself and that you put on each other to make this moment really special and really perfect. Um, and the peculiarity of uh, the Arctic Ocean in particular 
is that you really don't have much time. You know, the window of time that you have available to be able to be out in that environment is literally 10 days. So you haven't got much up from the moment, you know, you're taking those first steps. You know that someone's started that stopwatch and you've only got a very short space of time to soak up as much as you can from that moment. So, I mean, there's a million things buzzing around your head. And uh, in the immediate hours before that extract that I read, um, we'd flown from Svalbard, some remote islands right, you know, in the very north of Norway to the to the north of Norway. Uh, we'd flown through the night from there to a sort of base camp out on the Arctic Ocean. And then we transferred across to some helicopters and then we'd made a very short but dramatic flight at low altitude, you know, in an aged Cold War era helicopter that sort of thump, 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 that, that vibration going through your bones. Um, you know, it's all, you feel like you're going into war. <laughs> it feels like you're going into battle. But luckily for us, it's, you know, battle against ourselves and the environment and uh, our nerves rather than, than any material enemy. But um, it's all very dramatic from the word go. And then your surroundings are just about as terrifying and awesome that as they could possibly be i mean as i was trying to convey in that particular passage is that it's this bizarre mix of beauty and horror <laughs> that you're looking at um and it's really difficult to sort of keep yourself mentally in control in those moments but then there's the physical dimension too you know we stepped into minus 40 degrees uh fahrenheit or centigrade doesn't matter it's the same temperature so minus 40 degrees i mean that's likely three times as cold as your home freezer so there's a whole load of physical and mental signals that are firing through your brain and uh it's really quite something so let's take a step back in time and could you talk to our audience about uh, when and how the idea of having an all-female expedition came to you? Yeah, so I mean, I've been fortunate enough to be traveling in the polar region since I was a brand new graduate straight out of university, so uh, for 20 or more years now. And throughout that time, I've put together all sorts of teams and expeditions to make all sorts of journeys in cold places around the world. Um, and back in 2009, I put together an international team of women to ski to the South Pole. And we made that journey uh, successfully. And uh, But the real amazing thing about that experience for me was the team themselves. Um, the majority of them didn't have any previous experience to the level of some of them hadn't slept a night in a tent before or put on a pair of skis before. Um, and they came from places like India and Singapore and Brunei Dar es Salaam and Jamaica, places that you don't necessarily associate with polar exploration or even sort of adventure and, and exploration. And the real sort of experience that stuck out for me was spending time with those women and having these extraordinary experiences with a group of people who had such different perspectives to mine. And that really stuck with me. And so 10 years after that initial expedition, 
I was thinking about the North Pole and putting together an expedition to go to the North Pole. And I was really certain right from the outset that I, yet again, I wanted to put together an international team of women to use the experience as a bit of a cultural experiment as well as a physical exploration. And so that was the sort of initial seeds of coming up with what became uh, the Women's Euro-Arabian North Pole Expedition 2018. Could you expand a little bit on the notion of it being a cultural experiment? Yeah, so at the time that I was thinking about this expedition, um, I just spent a summer going backwards and forwards from northern Russia to the North Pole in the middle of the Arctic Ocean um, in a huge, it was the most powerful ship in the world at the time. It was a huge 14-deck, 76,000-horsepower nuclear-powered icebreaker. And this behemoth sort of uh, bashed its way uh, from <laughs> through the Arctic Ocean to the North Pole uh, four times in a season. And so I was sort of crisscrossing the Arctic Ocean, looking out at this environment that seemed so strong you know at the time it seemed invincible you're watching uh blocks of ice uh, the size of an apartment um being turned over as if it was a child's toy so you're seeing these this huge power of nature all around you but at the same time i knew from my scientific background that this environment was incredibly fragile and that's what kind of led me to want to put together a team to the north pole and then when i started to think about okay what would be the most um sort of profound team, I guess, in which to make this journey. At that time, you know, the news, every time you turned on the TV or the radio or opened a newspaper, uh, it was dominated by the relationship between the West and the Middle East. And um, I reflected on the fact that I had very little idea of what the reality of a woman living in the Middle East today was. And I suspected the same might be true in reverse. And I thought, you know, really, to me, it appeared there was quite a big disconnect between particularly between women in these two cultural regions. And, you know, I knew very clearly that when you undertake an expedition in a place like the Arctic Ocean or Antarctica, you know, these environments are so other, they're so foreign for the majority of us um, that it really strips away all those things that we like to hide behind, all those differences that are such barriers in normal life. You know, it doesn't matter how much money you've got in your bank account or what the title is on your office door or what label is in your clothes when you're <laughs> struggling across um, a pile of ice rubble at minus 40 degrees uh, near the North Pole. You know, suddenly all that matters is the heart of who we are and you get to know people very well, very quickly. And so I thought, well, that's a really useful mechanism for perhaps stripping away a lot of the awkwardness or unfamiliarity in a relationship so that we can really get to know each other very well. And I thought that might provide some insight on the perspective that uh, my fellow teammates, whether they be from another European country or from an Arabic Middle Eastern country, um, I thought we might return from that experience with um, some really interesting insights and revelations. And if I remember correctly, you had over a thousand people apply to join the expedition. You had to narrow it down to just 10 women joining you. Can you talk about what that process was like and how, how you approached decision making? As yeah, so I had, um, I think it was just under a thousand 
women uh, respond to my advertising for people that wanted to join me on this expedition to the North Pole. And it was almost too many for me to deal with because I don't have an office of people helping me organise these expeditions. I'm not part of a big organisation. It's literally just me and a computer and anyone that I sort of managed to enlist to help me. But um, And, you know, a thousand responses was almost too much in order to retain in my head <laughs> what uh, so, so even when I split it down into sort of selection criteria, um, it didn't really help because just the number of applications were, were too much. Um, but the initial shortlisting was actually quite straightforward. But it was once I got down to probably about 60 or so. Uh, that's when it started to become really difficult because of those responses, you know, they were all so amazing. And I hate the role of selector in any form because I think the very action of selecting also has the downsides of there's a sense of judgment in there somewhere. And, you know, that's not my intention at all. To, you know, I don't feel qualified to judge anybody. I wish I could have taken everyone. And so what I was looking for was a sense of their motivation you know, what was it that had driven them to want to be part of this? And was it a motivation that I felt would carry them through all the tough times that I knew were coming? You know, so a sort of nondescript desire to see polar bears or something like that. But I thought, you know, that's probably not going to cut it through those long hours of training and everything else. Um, but, you know, when people talked about their role models and wishes to inspire their children and um, thoughts about the environment, I thought, gosh, these are real sort of deep um, thoughts, deep considerations that are going to keep them going and motivate them even in those really dark hours. So that's what I was looking for most of all. But I tried to keep um, the selection as open as possible. You know, there were a few things for safety that I had to put in there. People had to be able to swim. Uh, people had to be able to speak English so that we had a common language between us all. But, you know, in terms of age, experience, background, I wanted to try and make the team as diverse and therefore as representative as I as I possibly could. One of the things that surprised me was that there was about two years of training. So between selecting the members of the team and actually hopping on that helicopter from the excerpt you read about is, do I remember correctly, was it as long as two years? Yes, I actually think it was a little bit longer than that. But yes, yeah, so it was definitely a solid two years. And and why was so much training needed? So the process for getting ready for an expedition like this, it's um, it takes quite a long time, particularly if you have an international team, because, of course, then your opportunities to get everyone together in one place is quite limited. You know, there's a lot of time, energy and expense, um, crucially, involved in getting people together from all corners of the world or certainly from across Europe and the Middle East. So that was one factor. And then the difficulty of getting into an environment that was suitable for us to train for the Arctic Ocean. So our first uh, training expedition uh, took place in September of 2016. Um, so, you know, this was a, a good two years before the expedition proper. And uh, we gathered on a glacier in Iceland. Um, but we spent uh, a few days first sort of lower down on the coast of Iceland. And I went through a lot of the skills that people needed um, in order to take part in the expedition, sort of in theory first. So, 
for example, putting up a tent as a team of four. You know, we went outside onto the grass um, in the rain of Iceland and practiced in groups of four getting up the tents that we would be using on the expedition. And then uh, we went outside and practiced lighting the um, liquid fuel powered stoves that are about the size of the palm of your hand, but incredibly powerful. Um, practice not only lighting those stoves, but also doing simple mends on them, um, you know, identifying what's going wrong and what you can do about it. So, you know, learning quite a range of skills from basic uh, first aid to sort of technical uh, camp craft to navigation um, and then the all important team dynamics as well. We did a lot of work on not just getting to know each other, but learning ways of operating together, of making us, you know, not just a group of individuals, but a fully functioning team. And yeah, that's that's hard and it and it takes some time. You know, not only do you have to deal with your own personal psychology, but you have to deal with the psychology of the group too. And that's all skills that you have to learn. So I mean it was three or four days, I think, if I remember right, before we went anywhere near any snow or ice. And then, you know, after that initial training, then we went up to the snow and ice and then we put all that sort of theoretical knowledge um, into practice. But as soon as you add that element of the brutal cold, the, you know, unflinching environment that you're in, uh, it adds a whole new level to all those things. You, you might have been able to light that stove 10 times in a row without even thinking about it when you're down in the warmth of the coastal Iceland. But then you get to the top of a glacier where it's blowing a hoolie and it's, you know, you're literally freezing and you can't operate your fingers properly. And you've got your other teammates behind you, you know, saying, quick, get the stove on. I'm literally freezing. You know, suddenly you've forgotten everything and you can't remember how to get the stove lighting. And and then it doesn't light and you don't know what to do about it. You know, and all those things play, play a role. So, um, you know, we had to make sure that we did enough training that people not only gain knowledge, but also gain confidence. And, you know, that, that takes some time. And in addition to what you talked about earlier, uh, you and your team were also gathering data on psychological impacts in extreme environments and physiological stresses. Uh, could you just summarize what it is that you, you found from the research you conducted while you were at the North Pole? Yeah, so the uh, we were really excited to take part in this study because uh, particularly with the reaction of the human body to extreme environments, it turns out there's quite a lot of data that exists over a long period of time from things like astronauts as well as extreme athletes and explorers and things like that, mountaineers. Uh, but most of that data comes from European males or North American males, so white males. And there's not a lot of information from women and pretty much no information from women of different ethnic backgrounds. Um, so obviously looking ahead to the period of space exploration that we all hope is coming, this is really significant data that we're missing uh, for the teams that we're hoping to send out on interstellar and interplanetary travel. Um, so our expedition was sort of leapt on um, by a number of scientists as a really valuable opportunity to gain um, some much sought after data. Uh, but it was pretty committing. Uh, so we had to spend two days in the hospital in Longyearbyen before we went out on the ice and to have all sorts of baseline studies taken. 
so that they knew what the state of our bodies were when we left on the expedition. And then during the expedition itself, we were covered in monitors. We felt a bit like cyborgs <laughs> walking across the ice because we had little temperature sort of thermometer things uh, sellotape to our chest and to, we had them on our wrists and we had sleep monitors on our wrists and then we had accelerometers on each hip and we had like a blood sugar um, monitor inserted into our bloodstream. It's a small fine needle inserted into your bloodstream on the back of your arm that sort of diabetics use um, and uh, then we had to regularly give samples of our saliva and this may sound like a simple thing to do in normal life, but when you're at minus 40, remember that anything, any liquid that leaves the warmth of your body instantly freezes. So being asked to give a sample of saliva into a tiny little test tube at various points during the day, you know, it was pretty hard not only to summon saliva in those sorts of temperatures, but then to get it in a test tube before, of course, it froze solid into ice. So uh, science in action proved pretty problematic for us but the uh, data that was gathered everyone was really happy with but it will of course be years before we know the results of that data it's all that data has been added to the much larger pool of data about how the human body reacts in certain environments and that data will be used for all sorts of projects and technological developments uh, that come in the future so, you know, when that day arrives, when we wave goodbye to astronauts going off to Mars or something, myself and the rest of the team will have the satisfaction of knowing that uh, some of those saliva samples that we worked so hard to collect might well have contributed in some way uh, to that to that interplanetary effort. And, and finally, at what point in the process of uh, putting your experiences into book form did you come up with the idea of including uh, portions that were from the perspective of some of the team members. Yes, well, I mean, although it's my name on the cover of the book, in no way am I the author of this book. Right from the outset, it was that we would write the book as a team. And, you know, as you, as you read the book, I, I hope you'll agree that we've succeeded in that. Of course, for our publishers and our poor, long-suffering editor, it must have been a complete nightmare of a prospect. <laughs> you have the accounts of uh, nine different team members. And even when we're recalling the exact same incident, um, it's amazing how different people's memories of the exact same thing might be. So even now when you read through, you find some inconsistencies in there. But I think rather than that being a negative, that's actually a positive. It highlights how confusing the team experience can be you know being out there on the ice um, as a group of people and having to work together as a team is really demanding and challenging at times and uh, and I think one of the big um, achievements of the team is that we've been really honest in this book about how we felt at different points during the journey, about what we were doing, about ourselves, about each other. And yet at no point does it feel malicious or um, you know, negative in any way. It's just, you know, being really honest about the human experience. And I hope the result is, is that for readers, that makes it a much more real experience um, for them as they're living it with us uh, in, in, in the book. And I just wanted to briefly follow up on that. Is there something that you learned from these accounts? Uh, obviously, you know, subjective. And as you said, people sort of 
remembered things differently, something that you took away that might impact the way that you lead similar expeditions in the future? Oh, for sure. I mean, so many. I mean, each expedition that I do teaches me something new. I'm, I've never stopped learning and I certainly, you know, don't feel that I know it all or I'm an expert in any way. But yeah, I mean, this specific expedition, I mean, one of the uh, lovely things that I learned in this book, for example, um, you know, I shared a, a tent out on the ice with Natasha, who is from uh, Slovenia. And uh, we started off as a tent group of four in our tent and we ended up being just the two of us. And uh, I won't sort of add a spoiler by giving you the reasons why our two tent mates um, ended up leaving us. Um, but the result was that it was just me and Natasha in the tent. And uh, she writes this passage in the book saying how the first night that it was just me and her in the tent that she was really conscious about having to do everything right and felt a little bit like she was on a school trip with a teacher and had to be on her best behaviour. And I, of course, was absolutely oblivious to that until I read it. And it made me laugh a lot. But then it also made me think about you know, how unaware we are sometimes of uh, the lived experience of the people around us and how our actions have such an impact on the well-being and the experience that other people are having. And so, yeah, it was a, a real eye-opener. Perhaps my favourite story of misapprehension between two team members was something uh, that both Lamise and uh, Stephanie wrote about. So Lamise was our team member from Kuwait, and Stephanie was our team member from Cyprus. And uh, on the first day, we had a really tough day. And at one point, Lamise had a sort of, uh, she almost became paralysed just by the effort of everything. It was a sort of mixed mental and physical response to the stresses of the day. And she remembers sort of just suddenly slumping, almost collapsing on her poles. She was still conscious, but she couldn't move anything. And so she could hear her team members around her. And she heard uh, one of her teammates say, um, oh, you know, Lamise, are you OK? And then she heard Stephanie rush over and say, shush, you know, don't talk to Lamise. She's praying. We must leave her alone, you know, leave her to have some privacy so that she can pray. And uh, Lamise, meanwhile, is hearing all this. And in her mind, she's saying, why would you think I'm praying? I'm not praying. <laughs> this is not the time for prayer. And she really needed someone to come and help her. And so there was this total misapprehension between the two of them um, that luckily came to a positive end. But uh, I thought it was a rather lovely story of, uh, of how with the best intentions, we can get things very wrong. <laughs> Thank you for that. And there, you know, there are many more stories like that in the book. It's just, it's, it's an amazing accomplishment. And uh, I, I hope you take pride in, in, in what you did. And I'm looking forward to reading the account of, of whatever it is you, uh, you end up doing next. Uh, thank you again for your time this afternoon, Felicity. And thank you, listeners. The book again is Polar Exposure, an all-women's expedition to the North Pole, published by Imagine. Please join us again soon for the next Litcast. <laughs>